You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. On behalf of the United States Institute of Peace, we're delighted to welcome you to this important discussion in commemoration of the 30th anniversary of Cambodia's Paris Peace Agreements. My name is Luce Grande, and I'm the president of USIP, which was established by the US Congress in 1984 as an independent, nonpartisan national institution dedicated to preventing, mitigating, and helping to resolve violent conflict abroad. Five years ago, USIP was proud to host an event marking the 25th anniversary of the agreements. Signed by 19 governments, the Paris Agreements laid out a roadmap for ending two decades of conflict. They launched a process of national reconciliation and they paved the way for future economic growth. These were pathbreaking agreements and a very important milestone in the history of Asia. In the five years since our last event, the political environment has changed. Significant progress has been made in implementing the many commitments that formed the agreements, but there are still a number of commitments that haven't yet been honored. During the next hour, we hope to reflect together on the legacy and continuing relevance of the agreements, and specifically to assess the impact of the agreements on Cambodia's political environment and to identify the steps parties can take to uphold the commitments when haven't yet been fully implemented. We're delighted to be collaborating today with the Bureau of Conflict Stabilization Operations at the U.S. Department of State. I hope everyone joins us in welcoming our distinguished panelists, including Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Ariel Ekblad and Ambassador Chumsonri. I have the pleasure of now introducing Ariel Ekblad, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Bureau of Conflict Stabilization Operations at the U.S. State Department. Please join me in welcoming her. Thank you so much, Lee. So good morning, and I appreciate that gracious introduction. It's an honor to speak to you all today. I'd like to start by extending a heartfelt thank you to the U.S. Institute for Peace for partnering on this important event. I want to thank you also to the ambassador and all of today's panelists for sharing your wisdom as we reflect on the progress Cambodia has made and the progress that we are still seeking to attain. I look forward to hearing each of your insights. And lastly, I want to thank all of you who are joining us today, both from DC and Cambodia. Your presence is a testament to the continued importance of the Paris Peace Agreements. As you know, the 1991 peace agreements were a remarkable example of multilateral diplomacy that not only ended Cambodia's decades-long civil war, but paved the way for a constitution which guaranteed human rights and multi-party democracy. The agreements were the result of a lengthy and laborious negotiation co-chaired by France and Indonesia with varied but significant involvement by the United States, the United Nations, Australia, and Japan. It was truly an international and multilateral effort with 19 signatory countries. The agreements laid the groundwork for the United Nations' first ever de facto administration of state and largest peacekeeping mission to date. The mission resulted in the repatriation of more than 360,000 refugees, substantial disarmament of combatants, combatants excuse me, and an eventual tribunal for former leaders of the Khmer Rouge's genocidal regime. 
1993, building upon the agreements, Cambodia adopted a new constitution guaranteeing multi-party democracy and fundamental freedoms. The following elections handed state administration to a democratically elected Cambodian government. The Paris Peace Agreements were a historic and unprecedented achievement. Most importantly, the agreements demonstrated the will of the Cambodian people that they might pursue the ambition of the democratic experiment. The excitement that surrounded the agreements demonstrated the foundational belief in the agreement's underlying principles, inclusive government, true multi-party democracy, and the protection of fundamental freedoms. Today, the people of Cambodia have made it clear that these principles are not only still relevant, but that their protection is as urgent as it was in 1991. Over the last 30 years, Cambodia has gained stability and seen significant economic growth. Most recently, it's been running a successful COVID-19 vaccination campaign. The U.S. government and American people have been a proud partner with Cambodia throughout this period of growth. Cambodia has been a valued partner in the international fora, including on child protection, UN peacekeeping, public health and education, efforts to prevent nuclear proliferation, and expanding economic and commercial ties. Further, we appreciate Cambodia's work as the 2021 co-chair of the Mekong-US partnership and look forward to working with Cambodia in its role as ASEAN's 2022 chair. To support this undeniable progress, the United States is engaged in a variety of efforts. Since the signing of the Paris Peace Agreements, the US has invested more than $3 billion to improve the health, human development, and food security of the people of Cambodia. U.S. foreign assistance to Cambodia totals more than $100 million per year to protect Cambodia's critical ecosystems, improve governance, strengthen the educational system, prevent trafficking in persons, support demining, and UN peacekeeping training. Recently, the U.S. contributed $15 million to help address economic and health challenges caused by COVID-19 and provided 1.1 million Johnson & Johnson vaccines to support the government's vaccination campaign. The United States has supported Cambodia's economic growth through assistance programs and trade benefits. As a result, the United States is now Cambodia's largest export market, accounting for 36% of its exports. This represents a doubling over the past five years. This progress is laudable, without a doubt. Cambodia's advancement in human development, health outcomes, and economic growth are greatly impressive. Still, some aspects of the agreements remain unfulfilled. Rather than realizing the competitive multi-party democracy envisioned 30 years ago, today Cambodia is witnessing increased repression and democratic backsliding. The country's primary opposition party was dissolved and its leaders subjected to politically motivated trials. Opposition supporters, journalists, civil society, and citizens who criticized the ruling Cambodian People's Party have been charged with incitement and imprisoned. Some reports indicate an alarming decrease in internet freedom and increasing prosecutions against individuals engaging, engaging in political discourse online. These actions have been widely condemned by many of Cambodia's international partners, including the United States. We have and will continue to urge the Cambodian government to protect fundamental freedoms and multi-party democracy. Freedom of speech, assembly, and democratic choice are essential for continued peace and prosperity. A departure from these principles is a departure from the primary vision of both the Paris Peace Agreements and the Cambodian Constitution. That political power rests with the Cambodian people. Thus, the Paris Peace Agreements and the principles therein remain just as important today as they were 30 years ago. History has shown that countries that respect human rights are more peaceful, more prosperous, and more stable. Now more than ever, 
It's important for the government of Cambodia and all signatories to stand with the Cambodian people to reaffirm the Paris Peace Agreement's commitments. The United States will continue to actively support Cambodia's development as a prosperous, democratic, and independent partner. We recognize that these principles resonate not only with those who experience the horrors of the Khmer Rouge regime, but are foundational to today's youth and their future. We are heartened by the emerging generation of forward-looking Cambodians that is emerging, young people who take seriously their democratic rights and responsibilities, their education, and their potential. Quite frankly, democracies at all stages of growth require self-reflection and course correction. The United States will continue to partner with Cambodia to encourage a return to such reflection and course correction. As we listen to our panelists, I challenge the audience to consider the ways in which you wish to see Cambodia grow, into, grow in the years ahead. I look forward to today's discussion. And again, thank you all for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Deputy Assistant Secretary Ekblad, for those opening remarks. And on behalf of USIP, I'm honored to introduce next uh, His Excellency Chum Sun Ri, who is one of Cambodia's most distinguished diplomats. He's been the ambassador to the United States and to Mexico since 2018. Previously, he was an Under Secretary of State at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation in Cambodia. He's previously been ambassador to Australia, New Zealand, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Russia. Uh, he was also first secretary at the embassy in Washington uh, for three years in the 1990s. Um, ambassador Chum has received several national awards, including two medals of national merit, the Royal Order of Cambodia, and others. Ambassador, we're honored that you can join us today uh, and look forward to your remarks. Yeah, thank you for your kind introduction. Yes, Mr. Grande, President of U.S. Institute of Peace, the Honorable Arya Akbar, Deputy Assistant Secretary, U.S. Department of State, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. First, I wish to express my sincere thanks to the U.S. Institute of Peace for organizing this public virtual event on the occasion of the 30th anniversary of Paris Agreement as well as for the invitation extended to me to speak along with Deputy Assistant Secretary Arya Akbar and all the important speakers. Let me start by recalling some key historical events leading to the signing of the Paris Accord on Cambodia. The journey towards reaching an agreement was indeed long and started by the first meeting between Prime Minister Hun Sen and then Prince Norodom Sihanouk in Fair Anta the North from 2 to 4 December 1987. That paved the way for subsequent negotiation and the signing of the Paris Agreement. The Paris Accord offered a comprehensive political settlement of the Cambodian conflict. This led to the first general election in Cambodia in 1993 organized and supervised by the United Nations Transitional Authority in Cambodia, UNTA. After the election, the new constitution, the achievement of the Paris Agreement came into being. As a result, Cambodia became a constitutional monarchy and adhered to liberal, pluralist democracy political system. However, the nation had not yet achieved full peace since the Khmer Rouge withdrew from 
the Paris Agreement and continue to wage war. As a matter of fact, UNTA did not fully fulfill what the Paris Agreement was supposed to do. After spending over $2 billion US dollars and using a great number of force for the operation in Cambodia, UNTA withdrew and left Cambodia with two control areas and governments. War did not end. To settle national problem, Prime Minister Hun Sen developed win-win policy initiative to ensure peace and national reconciliation. Implementation of the win-win policy ended protracted war in Cambodia and brought about full peace, national and territorial unity at the end of 1998. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, political opponents of the Royal government of Cambodia regularly invoke the Paris Agreement to criticize and attack Cambodia. Therefore, I would like to share my government's view on the question. Why quoting the Paris Agreement is irrelevant since the UN mission in Cambodia ended on September 24, 1993. These Jews, I believe, we set line on the question to be raised for discussion later concerning free political environment, commitment made under the Paris Agreement, the signatory's current obligation towards the commitment, etc. With regard to the free political environment, what do we understand by free political environment? No doubt that it means in one word, democracy. Democracy requests a free and fair political debate, a peaceful confrontation on different ideas based on mutual respect. In Cambodia, since 1993, we have tried to comply with these principles, but the government will, for what we call a culture of dialogue, was betrayed because there are people who confuse freedom of expression with freedom to defend and slander, with freedom to call for racial hate, with freedom to publish fake news and fake documents, with freedom to provoke division among the nation by exacerbating the very sensitive issues like the legacy of the colonial term about the national territory boundary, with freedom to call the armed forces and the police to make sedition. The government has refused to confuse freedom of expression with freedom of insult or falsification. Like in most of democratic countries, we have laws, most of them similar to those in the developed countries that prohibit and punish such crimes. So the answer to the question is yes, the space for a free political environment remain in Cambodia for citizens for citizen who do respect the law. Concerning the commitment under the Paris Agreement, the purpose of the Paris Agreement is the comprehensive political settlement of the Cambodian conflict. This objective appears in the title and the preamble of the agreements. According to the reports on the negotiation leading to the agreement, the word comprehensive means the participation of the four parties of the conflict 
and in particular, the inclusion of the Democratic Cambodia decay, the Khmer Rouge faction in the settlement. The decay, one of the four signatory Cambodian factions, had defaulted. The failure of one of the signatories to comply with their commitments had dramatic consequences for the objective pursued by this agreement. During a transition period, disarmament of the faction, creation of a neutral political environment, promotion of human rights, repatriation of refugees and displaced people, organization of election, rehabilitation, and reconstruction. This withdrawal radically changed the purpose of the Paris Agreement and put an end to the comprehensive character of this political settlement and changed fundamentally the long negotiated balances and the resulting obligation. The joint mission ended on September 24, 1993. With the end of that mission, it was the end of the commitments provided for by the agreement. Everyone has his, his own evaluation of the way this commitment has been implemented. The report of the UN Secretary General as 2528 now, adopted by the UN Security Council, said, as symmetry to the Paris Agreements, the Cambodian Party had the primary responsibility for their implementation and that the future stability and well-being of Cambodia depends on Cambodian themselves. However, it is clear that once the UN mission was over, it was up to the Cambodian to decide how to implement the Paris Agreement. For the question on the signatory's current obligation towards the commitment made in the Paris Agreement, there are no more current obligations under the Paris Agreement. The Agreement on Sovereignty, Independence, Territorial Integrity, and Inviolability, Neutrality, and National Unity of Cambodia clearly state that Cambodia will maintain its sovereignty and independence once these principles are enshrined in the Constitution. It was never written in the Paris Agreement that Cambodia, after the transition period, that is to say, once the United Nations mission ended, would remain under international supervision. About human rights, in 1992, the Supreme National Council of Cambodia acceded to the relevant UN International Human Rights Instrument. Like our UN member states, Cambodia remained bound by the commitment implied by our membership in the UN. Cambodia as a full sovereign state has accepted the presence of an office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the mandate of a special representative of the UN Secretary General for Human Rights in Cambodia. It has been done not by virtue of an obligation created by the Paris Agreement, which mentioned only the possibility after the end of the transition period. 
Cambodia is well on track since the end of the joint mission. Peace, security, and political stability brings about good opportunity and presented to Cambodia to score great and proud achievement of socio-economic development in the last two decades. Prior to the pandemic, Cambodia realized an average growth of over 7% per annum. As a result, national economy grows rapidly and healthy. In real, GDP has increased from 3,649 million US dollars in 2000 to roughly 24,605 million US dollars in 2018. Based on the economic achievement, living conditions of people in general have gradually improved, reflected in increase of average per capita income from 288 US dollars in 2000 to 1,000. 563 US dollars in 2018. Poverty rate has lowered from about 53.2% 53, 53 in 2004 to roughly 13.5% in 2014, and expected to continue lowering to around 10% in the present. 30 years ago, the UN has deployed its peacekeeper to assist us Today, it is our turn to send back our peacekeeper to assist other countries in different parts of the world. Since 2006, Cambodia has deployed over 7,000 peacekeepers for the UN peacekeeping operation in Sudan, South Sudan, Central African Republic, Chad, Cyprus, Lebanon, Mali, Syria, and Germany. And Cambodia highly appreciate the, 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 assistance, the assistance provided by the United States in the rehabilitation and development of Cambodia during the last two decades. Two decade. And it is a sincere wish of the Cambodian government to further promote the relationship and cooperation and partnership with the United, with the United States. Thank you for your attention. Your Excellency Sun Ri, thank you very much for your remarks and representation of the Cambodian government's position and for your service as ambassador in Washington. Again, uh, we're very pleased that you were able to join us today and be part of this discussion. We will now turn to a panel discussion and questions and answers. So our Opening uh, speakers have agreed on the uh, peace process and political settlements that were in the Paris peace agreements based on principles of democracy, human rights, and fundamental freedoms and reconciliation. And they've also agreed on the social and economic progress that Cambodia has made since the 1990s. But we've heard two very different views about whether the agreements are still um, enduring and relevant today. So in light of these different perspectives, uh, we'd like to invite our panelists who are uh, Cambodian and foreign experts on uh, Cambodian politics and society to share their views on uh, what's changed since the PPA was signed, how have signatories fulfilled their commitments, and how can the signatories 
promotes and encourages respect for human rights and freedoms today. Uh, so we will hear from five panelists. Each will speak for three to five minutes each. Uh, and following that, there'll be a discussion based on questions that uh, members of the audience submit. You can do that on the USIP website event page. Uh, there's a space to submit questions there. So please do submit your questions uh, for the panelists' consideration. Uh, I'd like to briefly introduce the five panelists. Uh, so first we will hear from Dr. Sorpong Pu, who is a Cambodian-Canadian professor of politics and public administration at Ryerson University in Toronto. Uh, and he's previously uh, served in departments of political science in Canada, Japan, and Singapore. He has interests in global peace and security studies and comparative politics. Our second speaker uh, will be Dr. Caroline Hughes, who's the Associate Dean for Policy and Practice um, in the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. Um, and she's also the Reverend Theodore Hesburgh Chair in Peace Studies at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. Um, Dr. Hughes' work conceptualizes peace and development as political relationships uh, that are contested through post-conflict reconstruction in Cambodia and other countries in Southeast Asia. Third, uh, we're pleased to welcome Chak Sopiep, who's the executive director of the Cambodian Center for Human Rights, which is a human rights organization working for the promotion and protection of political and civil rights in Cambodia. As one of Cambodia's most prominent human rights advocates, her work has been recognized by former President Obama, the Indian ASEAN Youth Award, uh, Franco-German Prize for Human Rights and Rule of Law, and others. And she has a master's degree in international peace studies from the International University of Japan. Fourth, Dr. Aizawa Nobuhiro is the assistant professor uh, in Kyushu University's Department of Cultural Studies in Fukuoka, Japan. He's a specialist in Southeast Asia and international relations. Um, he was a Japan scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington from 2020 to 21, and has been a researcher uh, for the Japan National Graduate Institute for Policy Studies and the External Trade Organization's Institute of Developing Economies. And finally, our fifth speaker, Dr. Craig Etchison, is a visiting scientist at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. From 2006 to 2012, he was the Chief of Investigations for the Office of Co-Prosecutors in the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia that prosecuted Khmer Rouge leaders. And he's the author of several previous books on Cambodia. So thanks to all of our distinguished panelists. And uh, we'll turn first to Dr. Serpong. Good morning. Um, yes, I, let me express uh, my gratitude to the Institute, the U.S. Institute of Peace for organizing this event and inviting me to share some of my thoughts uh, about the PPAs, the Peace Accord. But before I do that, let me say just a, a few words about uh, uh, what I'm going to say. Um, the topic is and is still very controversial and even divisive. 
uh, when the peace accord was signed in 1991, it, there was some real opposition for various reasons. The strongest of which was that it included the Khmer Rouge faction. It was a legitimate challenge to the, the Paris uh, Peace uh, Agreement in a sense that, uh, you know, what the, the Khmer Rouge did from 1975 to 1978, uh, it turned the whole country into uh, killing fields. And, uh, but I was one of those who supported the Peace Accord uh, from the beginning, from day one. Uh, for me, it was a painful reality in the sense that it included the Khmer Rouge because I was a survivor of the Khmer Rouge uh, regime. I lost uh, many loved ones, including my parents, my, uh, my grandparents, my father who was executed in 1975, and my mother and six brothers, sisters and I were put in forced labor. So uh, for me, it was a very difficult challenge, but I supported it. So I just want to make it clear, because I think that the Paris Peace Agreement was based on certain, what I would call it, pragmatic, pragmatic realism, in the sense that, you know, there is no other choice. And, uh, and I would say that the idea of, of even waging a war against the Khmer Rouge was not even a moral option for me, as someone who went through the Civil War and witnessed a lot of violence, Cambodia actually needed peace. So I just want to make that clear that um, uh, my position has not changed uh, since, and uh, I have written on this topic, and I would say that, um, you know, my overall, my way of thinking is not, is, is never driven by, by um, anger or by hatred. Uh, it's always about peace in Cambodia, so I just want to make that clear. It's it's a, it's a deep desire for peace for the Cambodian people that I have uh, been uh, motivated to to uh, uh, write uh, about Cambodia. Um, I would want to make a few quick remarks here in that the when you assess the Paris Peace Agreement the legacy, you have to be balanced and fair, both positive and negative. So, and I will make a plea at the end, but let me start with the positive legacy. Um, the PPA, the Peace Accord, uh, made it possible for Cambodia to make a set of three transitions uh, from war to peace, from dictatorship to democracy, from poverty to prosperity. So for me, if I were to sum up the peace accord, it has to be based on these three transitions. Of these three areas, I would say the transition from poverty to prosperity is probably the most important one. The country has become a normal developing country. Uh, economic growth has been a positive indicator. Human Development Index show good progress, as the ambassador pointed out. I don't need to repeat that. But less positive and still positive was the transition from war to peace. The UN intervention did not put an end to the armed conflict. The disarmament process was a complete failure. It was not until the 19, late 1990s that the Khmer Rouge uh, armed rebellion ended. And I think the Cambodian government deserved a lot of credit for this positive legacy as well. So, um, 
there has been a lot of positive um, developments in, in, in Cambodia. But there are also negative legacies. Um, when we are talking about ne ne negative legacy, I refer to the worrisome political and legal developments and do not mean to suggest that no progress was made, but that the progress made after the UN intervention has been reversed. The ne negative legacy include the following. Cambodia can no longer be considered a multi-party democracy. As a scholar, I know what I, it means uh, when we say a multi-party democracy. So there has been a, a transition backward to a one-party democracy with elections held without any credible opposition parties in the last election. Human rights have made some progress in some areas when you talk about civil liberties, but by and large, they are not well protected, especially in the area of political rights and certain civil liberties. The rule of law is still highly problematic. Um, the uh, World Justice Project Rule of Law Index 2020, for instance, ranked Cambodia 127th place, 127th among 128 countries. Although I don't think that this assessment is fair, I still think that the assessment gave Cambodia a very bad image that must be fixed. So in terms of the rule of law, uh, Cambodia still has a lot, of work to, a lot of work to do. So what worries me is that the state institution remain deeply politicized and weak. Civil society organizations are, are far from playing an influential role. So my plea is this, Cambodia would be a better country if power could be shared and kept in check. If more efforts could be devoted to state and civil society institution building. But no effective action can be taken if we don't understand the real challenges. The most important of which is what I call the politics of survival, still deeply rooted in the emotionally charged security environment where political leaders cannot trust each other enough to find common solution. Most experts like to talk about the culture of impunity that has plagued Cambodia. But I like always to focus on the culture of mutual distress and retribution that must be overcome. So in short, the peace agreement laid a good foundation upon which we, the Cambodian people, can build a better future for ourselves and our children. But it would not be easy for them to achieve this objective because the Cam because Cambodian politics has also been complicated by global and regional power politics as well. And that is the, another challenge for Cambodia. So thank you very much, Dr. Sarpung, for your balanced and nuanced remarks. Uh, sorry that we have to move on in order That's to okay, on time, uh, but very much appreciated. We'll turn next to Dr. Hughes. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for inviting me to be part of the panel today. Um, I very much appreciate all the remarks that have been made so far. Um, I'm perhaps going to be a little bit more skeptical about the situation in my remarks. My, my argument is, is that the Paris Agreement certainly brought about a radical change in Cambodian politics and society. That's without any shadow of a doubt. 
However, I'm a little more um, a, a little more negative, perhaps, about uh, the way in which development, peace, and democracy have been connected in Cambodia over the past 30 years. And in fact, I would argue that the opportunities for peace and democracy have been undermined by an approach to development, which, although it has generated improvements in human development indicators, has nevertheless been marked by a, a predatory approach and by a significant sort of background noise of violence. So on the question of human rights and democracy, as, as we heard from previous speakers, there were many advances after 1991, but recent events have shown that some of the achievements of the Paris Agreements were fragile. And the problem, I would argue, was that there was a relative, relative lack of thinking in the Paris Agreements and the discussion around them about how the opening of civic space, um, as, as Professor Powell has just been describing, uh, might actually be secured beyond the establishment of formal institutions, such as a liberal constitution and an electoral process. Um, actually, you know, those, those formal institutions still exist, the constitution still exists, but it's regularly interpreted in a manner that is antithetical to robust protection of basic human rights. Elections have been regularly held, but I would argue that really since 1993, they've been argued, uh, they've been organized, I'm sorry, in such a manner as to ensure the dominance of the Cambodian People's Party. They've been a legitimizing device rather than a vehicle for any kind of genuine accountability. I think the Paris Agreements assumed that establishing a set of institutions that looked like the institutions common in Western countries would be sufficient for a liberal, a liberal democratic polity to spring forward in Cambodia. But in that, I think they failed to take note of the deep disorganization of civil society in Cambodia that was a legacy of the war. They failed to take effective steps to reduce the significance of the military and, military and the threat of military violence in strategies of rule. The imbalance between the power of the military and the weakness of civil society has undermined the potential for widening political space throughout the last 30 years. And, and because of that, I think we have seen civil society leaders and opposition politicians consistently calling for international assistance from the signatories of the Paris Agreements to correct this imbalance. But that assistance has not been forthcoming, particularly since Western ideas about democratic enlargement that were prevalent in the 1990s have, were replaced by a much more counter-terrorism focus after 2001. And I think that the transformation of the economy, although it you know, has been positive in terms of reducing poverty and so on, it has actually contributed to an ongoing environment of violence and insecurity. Um, in terms of the objectives of the Paris Peace Agreements, we should, we should consider this seriously. Has the development strategy that has been implemented in Cambodia been peaceful? And I would contend that it is not. We've seen violence used to promote the interests of investors across the board at the expense of general well-being. This includes the expulsion of rural communities from sites slated for plantation agriculture, the raising of informal settlements in Phnom Penh, brutal attacks on strikers, labour organisers and other activists. There's also indirect forms of violence that are very prevalent, widespread evidence of malnutrition amongst young women factory workers, for example, who repatriate up to half of their salaries to heavily indebted rural families. Young Cambodians migrate to work in cities and overseas at the expense of family life and under risk of the threat of trafficking. Uh, 
The looming environmental crisis on the Mekong River, which is essential to the food security of millions of Cambodians, promises to reverse many of the developmental gains made since 1991. And I think, you know, for me, the political and developmental objectives of the Paris agreements were in contradiction with one another. Political peace based upon expanding trust between former enemies and deepening confidence in liberal safeguards was at odds with a development strategy that was based on expulsion of ordinary people from uh, the uh, areas of Cambodia's richest natural resources, the selling of those natural resources to buy support for the ruling party. This prompted an extractive approach to the development of Cambodia's natural resources that was facilitated by international firms, including Western firms. And this has entrenched new forms of distrust and grievance and imposing order in the face of these has become a rationale for ongoing political violence. Obviously, it's easy to look clever in hindsight, but I think it's important to look back at the past 30 years at Cambodians' experience, because I think it has a lot to teach us all about the potential for violence in post-conflict development. And it teaches us that sustained, active, grassroots peace-building work is necessary to assure social justice, positive peace and respect for human rights in post-conflict situations. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Hughes, uh, for bringing in developments and how it relates to peace and security. Um, we'll now turn to the human rights uh, situation and uh, welcome Chuck Sopiep to share about her work and her perspectives on the agreements. Thank you, Andrew, and um, thanks to all remarks uh, made by um, professors and also the uh, Cambodian representative, um, the, the government representative earlier. Um, it's it, it's a bit challenging to be the um, speaker in the middle of, of the way where <laughs> Inric's um, um, thought have been uh, provoked, and um, I'm, I'm really inspired by the remark um, pointed out by um, Professor Sopopel. I, I would like to thank him a lot for, for sharing from his um, deep heart, you know, the, the feeling as a Khmeru survivor, where all those, you know, with the uh, suffering of the loss of the family member, but he value and he support the uh, Paris Peace Agreement. And to me, uh, hearing that is really um, kind of, you know, like as a young generation, I feel so much um, uh, uh, appreciate um, in the way how he healed himself. And that is the way forward for us as a Cambodian to move forward. Um, when it comes to the uh, uh, reflection of the um, uh, Paris Peace Agreement, um, I, I, I want to make um, first um, uh, looking at the relevancy of the Paris Peace Agreement, because um, there have been argument earlier, and a lot of time um, there have been a debate, <laughs> um, you know, the different view between the Cambrian government, civil society, or international community on whether the Paris Peace Agreement is a lie document or it's already a dead document. <laughs> uh, some to some, they said that, you know, no more relevant. But to me, I would argue that it's still relevant. It's not a dead um, document uh, because um, of two factors. One, um, if we look at the agreement itself, of course, you know, um, the, 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 the packet of, of, of the agreement consists of the um, four, four key documents. And, and in one of the um, uh, documents, um, uh, of course, you know, the, the final act of the, um, the, the Paris um, uh, conference, uh, especially the, uh, uh, the, on the political settlement um, of the Cambodia, it 
it detailed the um, kind of uh, arrangement um, during the transitional period. Um, with last from 91 to uh, 93. So, of course, when we look at this, this specific section, yes, the arrangement should be end within that transition period. However, the rest document does not, you know, connote the, um, uh, the, the duration that, you know, it should end within this transition. However, it only... Um, you know, like bind the um, uh, the the the, gap, uh, the Cambodia as well as the signatory um, obligation on the peace building process. So, um, to me, that is um, clear cut to me that the Paris Peace Agreement is 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 an ongoing document. We can't agree, we can't debate that. No, it's no longer relevant. And second um, factor, when we're talking about peace building process, we have to really understand what peace really mean. I, I, I said to um, 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 Professor earlier, um, she, she, she point out, um, you know, the, um, uh, the, the, the need for us to work on the positive peace. Because, you know, like in Cambodia, especially in the modern time, um, uh, the, the, the government like to promote a lot about saying peace. But, but I think it's, it's, it's nothing wrong. I think we should we should love peace, we should promote peace. However, when we're talking about peace in that sense, um, there have been a misconception that, you know, peace only understood as the mainly absent of the war, which is a negative peace. So when we're talking about peace, we have to understand that it has to achieve both the negative peace and the positive peace, which means that it's not only the absence of the war, but it, it had to build on the social harmony um, of the uh, citizen and people had to fully enjoy their fundamental freedom. And that is when we can say that it's a complete peace. So I would um, agree um, to, to um, uh, uh, Ambassador earlier, he mentioned that, of course, you know, following the adoption of the Paris Agreement in the early 90s, Cambodia had not yet achieved a full peace. Which I agree. But later on, when he said that, well, you know, up, up to the late 90s, um, with the um, disarmament and kind of um, rehabilitation of, um, uh, no, um, it's a, a reintegration of the army as, uh, as well as a guerrilla, Khmeru guerrilla, into the society that note as a full peace that have been achieved. I disagree with that because based on the concept of peace, it's not only the merely absent of the war. We have to work further on the enjoyment of people's uh, freedom. So there is one point I want to um, reflect on the re relevancy of the uh, Paris Peace Agreement, but second is on the re reflection. And I totally agree that we have to look at both positive and negative. Um, what I could see the positive side is that Cambodia have, uh, have um, made a very good um, um, document, uh, which is the constitution. It's really well drafted. It 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 followed the uh, Paris Peace Agreement spirit that um, detail that Cambodia is the country that follow multi part a uh, multilateral uh, multi party system, um, follow the democratic value, etc. 
but on paper, yes, but in real, real implementation, that is another part that I think a speaker have argued a lot with. I totally agree that um, Cambria have to work further to achieve, um, you know, this uh, real democratic uh, value, ensure the conducive environment of the free and fair election. Um, and also, you know, the challenge um, following the uh, Paris Peace Agreement still, all those with a good document on constitution, with the um, at, um, you know like a recognition of international human rights instrument, um, Cambodia have have still have the challenges um, with the institution. We we have a weak institution. We have a strong man. We have a strong individual in in power, but we don't empower the institution. Um, we don't have a clear separation of uh, power, which is the court, the um, uh, um, the, the legislative body and the executive body that should be separate, but somehow it's all under control of executive branch. And if we look at the military, which is the key, key power in the country, it's also politicized and that has to be um, reformed. Um, if we want to achieve a real, um, you know, a peace process um, as outlined in the Paris Peace Agreement. And I believe given the time as well, um, I just end um, my, my reflection with the current challenges, um, you know, with the big institution, with the, uh, uh, you know, the, the lack of a conducive environment to free and fair and the enjoyment of fundamental freedom by citizens. Um, I, I, I would look um, you know, for us, you know, 30 years of Paris Peace Agreement, if we compare to human being, it's like a mature adult. So we should be mature. <laughs> we should not still argue, you know, something that, you know, whether the development first or human rights first, it should no longer the argument. It should go along the way. And I, I, I wish to, um, you know, recall to all political leaders, especially Cambrian leaders, um, policy and leader, you know, to, to look at the Paris Peace Agreement as a model, you know, how the different fractions can come together. At the time we were in a conflict, there are war. Now we don't have war. Why can't we come together and put everything on table? Why don't we address the issue together peacefully? <laughs> you know, so um, that is my, my, my final thought that um, we should look at this uh, 30 year as a reflection where we want Cambodia moving forward to a real peace uh, process. Thank you. Thank you very much for those reflections uh, and your, your passion for Cambodia today and the history that we've been through. Uh, we'll turn now to Dr. Atchison, uh, who will share from his point of view uh, about the agreements and links to transitional justice. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, I would like to draw your attention to several contextual factors that I think are uh, important to consider when we're discussing the legacy of the Paris peace agreements. The first has to do with the difference in Cambodia's situation and status in 1991 versus today in 2021. Uh, 30 years ago, in 1991, Cambodia was effectively a failed state. And as such, it was put under the receivership of the international community. Um, Cambodia's sovereignty 
was symbolically invested in the Supreme National Council, uh, but in reality, uh, Cambodia's sovereignty was effectively exercised by the United Nations Transitional Authority in Cambodia, uh, emphasis on the word authority. So in that period, 30 years ago, uh, Cambodia was effectively helpless before the international community. Today, in contrast, in 2021, Cambodia is a fully sovereign state, a member of the international community. As Secretary Ekblad and Ambassador Chum have pointed out, uh, Cambodia has had a very robust economy for more than 15 years with 7% annual growth. It regularly contributes troops to international peacekeeping operations uh, and displays all of the rights and responsibilities of a sovereign state and a member of the international community. So the situation of Cambodia is very different in 1991 versus 2021. A second contextual factor concerns the interests of the international community in general and the signatories of the Paris Peace Agreement in particular. You will recall that through the, the war in Cambodia in the 1980s, there was fighting among four principal factions of Cambodians. But in reality, in many respects, the war in Cambodia was a proxy war being supported by Russia uh, or the Soviet Union during that period, China and the United States. So I would argue that the principal purpose of the Paris Peace Agreements was the desire of these great powers to terminate this proxy war and then leave Cambodians to solve their own problems. Um, now, when you're dealing with relations among sovereign states, there is a spectrum of methods or tools that diplomats and politicians use to try and uh, preserve and press their interests. One might say there are carrots and there are sticks. In the carrots, you can have political, diplomatic, economic, and military aid and cooperation of various types. And then at the other end of the spectrum, uh, you can have political condemnation, uh, diplomatic uh, demarches, uh, economic pressures, uh, uh, up to and including um, trade sanctions, uh, and in extreme cases, uh, military intervention. Um, among the varying signatories of the Paris Peace Accords, France, Indonesia, United States, Japan, and all of the others, these states have very different sets of interests with respect to Cambodia. And thus, it is difficult for this disparate collection of states to create a unified front in their relations with Cambodia. In fact, in my reading of the situation, over the last 30 years, there have only been two 
situations uh, where the international community has been able to present a unified front. One was the 1997 crisis, and secondly, the creation of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Otherwise, there seems to be no unified international community will to press Cambodia to do anything in particular. Finally, a third contextual question is the capability of Cambodia to deal with international pressure in 1991 versus 2021. Even with more than 20,000 troops and civil servants in Cambodia, the United Nations couldn't really impose its will in 1991. Um, the plan to canton, disarm, demobilize, and reintegrate the four armies completely fell apart. Um, in terms of protecting human rights with all of those troops in Cambodia, you will recall that the human rights component of UNTAC declared that acts of genocide were taking place while they were there. Did they prevent it? No. Did they punish it? No. They just announced that it was happening. So even with 20,000 troops, the international community could not even impose its will in 2021. Today, Cambodia knows how to deal with the international community. During the negotiations for the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, Cambodia's negotiators ran rings around the United Nations Secretariat and effectively was able to cause the establishment of a tribunal that they could control. So uh, my bottom line is that uh, it's very difficult, nigh on impossible for any particular country to get Cambodia to do something that it doesn't want to do. Um, and uh, I'll uh, leave my remarks right there. Thank you. Thanks very much. We can come back to this and other points in the questions and answers. Uh, we want to remind our audience, if you haven't yet submitted a question on the USIP events site on the web, please do that now. And we will select from those questions uh, for the remainder of the event after we hear from Dr. Aizawa, who is our last speaker. Thank you very much, Andrew, and um, I'm very pleased to join this distinguished panel. Um, my role here is to offer some different perspective from how Japan sees the process, uh, not only the peace agreements and also the post-peace agreements. Um, I emphasize the post-peace agreements because the Japanese view very much emphasize on the one word, reconstruction. I think that is also embedded in Japanese history in post-World War II as well, and its relationship with other Asian conflict, be it in Korea, be it in Vietnam as well. Uh, we very much understand reaching peace and reconstructing from peace is an equally difficult and also politically demanding process. So, um, I wouldn't go deep into the role of Japan in the peace agreements, but I really like to highlight the principle that Japan has took. It's very much on the inclusion. There's two levels of inclusion. One is political inclusion, and also it's a social inclusion. First of all, I just wanted to highlight, as um, uh, Dr. Etchison has highlighted in the post-peace period, the 1997. 
I think in in Cambodian process, there were so many occasions that there were politically you could just walk out of dialogue, right? Not just in 1991, and also 1997 as well. But there were every time there were political commitments to come back, and I think the current history should credit the way they kind of agreed to, you know, be able to include. In the 1997, it's always the second election is always the most difficult one to consolidate the peace. And I think that history of inclusion should not be forgotten. I mean, there are always pressure to exclude in the following elections and up until now, which is an easy political decision. But Cambodia has built on a lot of political inclusion decisions. You know, of course, it was through a lot of negotiations, multi national negotiations, not just in 1991 and 1997 as well. But I think in historiography, I think Cambodia, why the why it is no longer a failed state, I think that political, the process of political inclusion should be highlighted. And I think that principle, that principle of inclusion should be held because Cambodia proved it. That's number one. Number two, it's the social inclusion. I think uh, you know uh, many achievements from the Cambodian peace agreement, be it the constitution in the first elections. But I also want to highlight one thing: it's the civil code. That's where Japan really put an emphasis on. We we had this concept of peace dividend, and how could peace dividend reach to a social level, and that social level of peace dividend could sustain? It's not the constitution that will hold those dividends at place. It's also the civil code and the continuous judicial, uh, judicial reform and the upgrading of the system. I know this doesn't allow automatically to democracy. I know this is not enough, but I do think it was a necessary step. I think this is a foundation for the following, for example, democratization. I, I, I know I know this is not a very like uh, a newsworthy and a highlighted because there is no major you know elections on that. It's a very um, time consuming long-term process, but the trust to the civil code and the practice of law will definitely hold the Cambodian society together. And the, no matter what the political regime is, I think there is a foundation to hold that you know, the state system is there to protect any people's civil uh, rights and also um, the, the peace dividend. So I think you know highlighting those two, even though it might not be politically you know attractive, I think it's worth. Uh, the highlighting in the, in the following 30 years of process. Now, the final thing I would like to focus is this time. I think, you know, as Dr. Edson said, context matters. Um, I think we should recognize that the, the bar that we set in 1991 and the bar we need to set in 2021 is different because it's 30 years. You like it or not, there's a different generation that becoming a social force for Cambodia. And those new generation may not take the credit of how Cambodian leader reached peace. 
as much as they like to see more, for example, economic development and so forth. This happened in Japan too. You know, the leadership in the 1940s could not have their political credit when they were trying to govern in the 1980s. So, you know, this is this is a natural thing. But I think the Cambodian process also have to higher the bar. I don't think the peace agreement should be mentioned as either relevant or not relevant. I think it is the foundation, and I think it has to build on top of it. So what I mean by top of it is those you know, state institutions that are built, and I think now is the time to how to exercise that. And I think it lies to the people, and, and those people, whether it has to be, for example, democratically, democratically compassionate people with maybe tech-savvy technology, you know, I think that kind of design of how to build people is going to be the bar. And I want that inclusiveness that was built on 1991 agreement and followed by the Cambodian people to be part of that human human building, uh, human capacity building too. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Aizawa, and to all of our panelists for some really provocative and, and thoughtful remarks. We've heard different perspectives about the success and status of the peace process. Uh, so we'll turn now to questions. Uh, in the 10 minutes or so remaining. Uh, the first question that I'd like to share we, is that we've heard about limitations to freedom of speech, democracy, and rule of law. What can the world do to promote democracy in Cambodia? Uh, and uh, you know, I know Dr. Etchison's comment that uh, no single state can uh, compel Cambodia to do something, uh, given that what, uh, what can be done. Um, maybe turn to Dr. Sorpong first and then ask other panelists if they would like to add, and please keep your uh, remarks short. Thanks. Uh, this is a very important question. Um, if we compare to what to 1991 or the early 1990s and now 2021, you know, I'm, I'm a political scientist. I look at power structure. I look at institutional structure. It has been <laughs> turned upside down. There was certain balance of power at the time, but no more. The balance of power broke down. And now we have a, a one party that, do, that become dominant. Um, so it's very difficult to change a lot of things in Cambodia in terms of political structure. Um, it's, it's going to be very difficult. The only way that the international community can do to help Cambodia is to stay engaged and put pressure. But I would say even putting pressure has its own limitations because of the power structure. And uh, so what that means is that um, sanctions may not even work. I publish my research on economic sanctions in Myanmar and North Korea, they have basically failed and they even caused human insecurity. So I, I think the international community need to stay engaged and put pressure. But I think at the end of the day, the Cambodian people have to really understand the situation that they are in, that if they continue down this road, it's, it's quite unsustainable. And it is, it is in Cambodia's interest to, to allow democracy to flourish. I understand that the CPP would never give up power. I understand that. But I also expected the CPP to share power in, in a way that is constructive. Uh, so that's my quick remark. 
Thanks very much. Would anyone like to add to that or uh, have a different perspective? Yeah, Dr. Aizawa, please. Yes, uh, I just wanted to add on Dr. Sokong's point on engagement. I think engagement really matters, and I think engagement delivers too. Um, one of the things that um, how Japan engaged with Cambodia right now is, for example, the introduction of the digital central bank currency. I think that was possible because of the engagement. You know, um, Cambodia did not only rely on superpowers. Uh, they had all the engagement with other powers, middle middle powers, neighboring powers. I think those multilateral engagement matters. Why we engage? I think we have a trust on Cambodia as well. How do you keep the trust? I think that's where you know democratic values. You know, even though it's in the process, you know, you. I think the way we agree on this is a process. We are not going to give up on it. And even though, as the Dr. Sopon says, you know, the power sharing might be difficult, but we need to agree on principles and therefore an engagement comes and engagement will deliver. And that will stabilize and that will create choices for the country to build up on. So I think in that case, you know, there's a lot of things that engagement will create Cambodia stronger. Yeah, I just want to touch on Thanks that. Thanks very much. Um, we have two questions relating to transitional justice. So the first is the Paris agreements don't explicitly provide for a transitional justice mechanism, but they do commit the signatories to ensure that the practices of the past will not be allowed to return. So did that make space for later transitional justice mechanisms like the ECCC? Uh, and then second, a question uh, more uh, uh, for facts and clarification. Uh, how many individuals have been convicted of serious crimes committed during the Khmer Rouge regime by the extraordinary chambers? How long did it take? And has that transitional justice process been completed? So uh, send that to Dr. Etchison first and then others if they want to come in. Thanks, Andrew. Um, if you look carefully at what's been going on in Cambodia since the Khmer Rouge regime was overthrown in 1979, you will find that a, a plethora of transitional justice mechanisms have been applied, uh, starting with uh, 1979's People Revolutionary, People's Revolutionary Tribunal, um, uh, amnesty initiatives, uh, development initiatives, um, uh, peacekeeping initiatives, uh, on and on, up through to and including the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia. So uh, transitional justice is not a single event or a point in time, but it's a, it's a process that extends over time, indeed over generations. Uh, it, so uh, And it's a work in progress in Cambodia. Uh, and the Khmer, current Khmer Rouge Tribunal, which is now winding down, is just uh, uh, another event in that process. Uh, as to the uh, number of individuals convicted by the extraordinary chambers, so far there have just been three. The first was Keng Kek Uv, alias Duk, who was effectively the chief of the secret police under the Khmer Rouge. 
sentenced to life in prison for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And the second two were Nguyen Chea, who was the number two Khmer Rouge leader, the second only to Pol Pot, and Q Sampan, uh, who was the head of state succeeding uh, Norodom Sihanouk in that role. Um, those two have both been convicted of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Uh, and of those three, uh, only Q Sampan remains alive at this point, uh, still sentenced to life in prison. Thank you. Would anyone else like to comment on transitional justice questions? Dr. Sorpong, please. Just, I just want to make a quick remark here. Um, you know, I'm all for transitional justice. I think the Khmer's leaders, those are most responsible for the mass atrocity should even burn in hell from my perspective. So we agree on this. But I always have problem with this approach um, simply because in a very institutionally fragile state, the pursuit, there is always a tension between peace and justice. We have to recognize that. And my research, right now I'm finishing a new book on global criminal justice. I just don't get it. it it's very dangerous even in factually, uh, uh, in structurally fragile society. It's very difficult to pursue criminal justice. And we have learned a lot even about the ICC, the International Criminal Justice. It hasn't really worked that well. In fact, it generated a lot of tension. I just want to make that comment. Yeah, th thanks. I mean, this could be a, a topic for further discussion, perhaps in a, a future USIP event and doesn't only relate to Cambodia, but, but many other contexts in the world. Our final question is, uh, how can signatories support the Cambodian people to be part of the Paris Peace Accords Foundation and continuation? So I'd like to send that question first to Chuck Sophia and, and then Dr. Hughes. Um, thank you so much. Um... Yes, I think it's really important for us. Um, of course, I think uh, Professor uh, Aizawa um, have mentioned earlier that uh, we should not argue on, um, you know, whether Paris Peace Agreement is relevant or not. But <laughs> the reality is that on the ground, I mean, in Cambodia, people argue, um, especially from the government that, you know, no longer, you know, valid um, for the Paris Peace Agreement. So I think to make sure that it, it will be the foundation, like you mentioned, as well as other speakers point out, you know, um, to, to, to um, see the legacy or to see the Paris Peace Agreement as the foundation for us to work further. It's really important for us to recognize, um, you know, that is relevant. And, and I still argue that. And um, when we uh, agree that it's relevant for us, then it's the way for, forward, you know, for Cambodian government to to, to recognize that, yes, you know, we have to work further um, for a peace building process. And, and, and you know, by saying that, um, you know, by acknowledging that, you know, Cambodia achieve a complete peace, um, it's, it's not, uh, it, it, it is not totally right because, you know, when, when we're talking about peace, I again uh, repeat the concept of peace that it's not just a merely absence of war. And when we say every time, you know, we place on the banner, on the street, saying peace, you know, 
and at every corner of the boulevard, we, we, we see the, the, the kind of sign saying peace. I think we have to understand clearly what peace we really mean. So um, go back to the question. Um, I believe that um, it, it requires us to recognize that, yes, we agree together that you know the foundation is there and there are much work for us to to work further for a peace process and 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 secondly it's not just the cambodian um, people and it's not just the cambodian government who is obliged in this um uh, process the signatory i think japan us you know, other um, uh, 18 cemetery um, have to move forward as well. You know, um, these cemetery are still obliged to support uh, Cambodia. I think you, um, some of us mentioned that, you know, after the agreement um, and the, the purpose of the agreement is to um, settle the political conflict and then after Afterward, it, it is Cambodia ourselves to decide. Of course, yes, we will decide. But I think we need all of you as a signatory to support us. You know, otherwise, uh, you know, we are still in the, you know, like a trend. <laughs> Maybe in Japanese, it goes it, it go very fast, but it, it derailed from the right direction. Now we are not just going... Um, to you know, too 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 fast, but we are um, a bit off the track. You know, um, the democracy have been stepped backward. So um, again, you know, on the 30th anniversary, I would appeal to all signatory, both the Cambodian government as one of the key pl uh, player and other um, signatory, to review its obligation and link to the previous question how we can you know, build the rule of law and um, um, uh, ensure the fundamental freedom for citizens, I think the signatory um, can can have, um, can exert it, 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 it power, it, it uh, you know, both economic, politic, and, you know, bilateral or multilateral um, relationship by reviewing um, whether, you know, all of this uh, partnership, either the ad or either the um, investment have have, have respect the human right principle or not. And if it does not, what does your framework, I mean, different country framework allow you to do? You, we can't, I think a lot of time we argue on the uh, geopolitics. You know, when you pressure so much, the China will be in. But you know, even without that, China is in. <laughs> not just in Cambodia, but almost in the Southeast Asia region and other countries. So it really requires to, um, you know, work together uh, on the framework that X individual country have put out, you know, every time I heard US, I heard UK, I heard Australia saying that, well, human right is our core principle. We work on the human right principle. But when we assess to that kind of relationship, a lot of time, one one side you would argue that well, democracy is 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 problematic. But well, yes, let us support you. This it is it is not a consistent approach. And when I say that, please don't quote me wrong. That I I suggest for for ascension, I I, I suggest that different countries should not um, support Cambodia politically or economically. No, I don't argue in that manner. What I suggest is for different signatory to really make sure that you walk the top of your own framework beyond the Paris Peace Agreement, as well as within the framework of Paris Peace Agreement. Um, I hope I make it clear here. Thank right. you. Thank you very much for that uh, uh, full response. I'm sorry we're at the end of our time. And for those who have submitted other questions, uh, 
apologize that we can't address all of them. Clearly, there's a lot more we can discuss here. Uh, before we close, with everyone's agreement, would like to uh, invite Dr. Hughes for a few last words. Thank you. Um, yeah, well, just just to follow up, I, I totally agree with um, Mr. Beep that um, I think reasserting, you know, re recommitting perhaps to to a culture of human rights is is the most positive thing we can do. I mean, I think I think we have to be a little bit careful about advocating for international intervention. I don't think that. Uh, the US, for example, really um, has any moral high ground to stand on um, with respect to sort of Cambodian history. And so I, I'm a little nervous about sort of advocating for, you know, vigorous action by outside countries. But I think we can all think about where the clothes that we buy come from and, and what we're prepared to accept in terms of ethical business practices. We can also all think about how the, the ecological crisis on the Mekong River relates to climate change that we all contribute to. And we can all think about um, um, just, you know, promoting the idea that human rights is a really valuable uh, and really worthwhile um, approach to, to, to thinking about, um, you know, how, the way that humans live together. And I, I think that those are things that, that we really need to, we really need to do at, at this particular moment in time. Thanks. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks to everyone who's joined this event, uh, including Deputy Assistant Secretary Ariel Ekblad, His Excellency Chum Sun Ri, and our five panelists. So on behalf of the U.S. Institute of Peace, I wish you all a good day and uh, continued engagement and support of Cambodia and our peacebuilding mission. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.